Continuing from last time, in this episode, we are privileged to gain invaluable insight on rural development in China from leading expert Professor Scott Rosell, director of the Stanford China Center. With over 30 years researching critical issues like poverty, inequality, and education, Professor Rosell provides a nuanced perspective on the opportunities and challenges facing rural communities. Our second topic is on the Chinese demographic shift, the aging population, and the introduction of policies to help increase the birth rate, which, as you know, is heavily connected with the recent educational policy reforms, whether that's policies limiting private education or policies that are aimed to reduce the burden of current students. If the quantity of children are going to fall, you better raise quality of children. So I think that that's why I think that this is so very, very important to 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 get to get these kids developed as much as they can, um, and uh, um, you know I think um, that's yeah, that's important. Um, uh, do, do you want to know my uh, my view on uh, on ed- educational reform in terms of getting rid of the the bushiban? Get rid of the <laughs> yes, uh, of course. I think a lot of our audience would, would love your insight on that, including myself. I mean, I, I've. You know, it's a very, very hot topic in China when it came out in 2021, the, the policies. I, I think that I understand the pressure and, you know, you sort of understand that fundamental reason why the government said, you know, let's get rid of these cram schools, right? Because, you know, it was, there was a lot of pressure, you know, on kids and everything. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing is, they did this right as the entire industry was just reaching the fourth and fifth tier cities. So up until that time, these these cram schools were across Beijing, Shanghai, and then they worked. Uh, then they went to Wuhan, Chengdu, Xi'an, right, and then they worked down to the third tier cities, um, and the fourth and fifth tier cities and the rural schools. They didn't they they didn't have any of that, right? So um, you know that, of course. Um, you know, they, they got further and further behind and, and you see it, um, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, half of the students that went to Peking University in Tsinghua were from rural areas. <laughs> today, today, less than 5% have two parents that are rural. I mean, you know, almost, almost none, right? And, uh, and it's, you know, it's not, it's because the schools are poor quality it's because their parents didn't raise them right. Uh, they were raising farmers instead of college kids. Um, but it's also because that these kids in urban areas had access to these cram schools, to this after-school education. And finally, they were reaching these fourth and fifth tier cities. And, you know, they were setting up, there was a great program we were going to evaluate um, in 2019 before they banned them. And it was... It, it, it was called um, Educational Library. And basically, in the cities, one lesson would cost you three or 400 yuan. In this area, it was 500 yuan per month. And, um, and basically, you got to go to this education library uh, twice a week. And you went in there and there was, it looked like Starbucks, <laughs> okay? It, it was beautiful Starbucks with some music playing and the kids got online and worked together. And there was one or two teachers that were would answer questions and you would go one afternoon and then a half a day on Saturday or Sunday. And it, 
every single family sent their kid to this. They were so happy to do this. Not, not every, but almost every. And then they cut it off. Okay. Since they cut it off. And I, again, I understand why they cut it off, but since they cut it off, guess what happened? First and second tier cities, the parents now have tutors come into their house and continue cram school in their house. That doesn't happen in rural China, right? The rural Chinese don't have a tutor to come into their house, right? At 500 yuan or 700 yuan an hour, right? Uh, it just doesn't happen. I And if you add, you know, the COVID disturbance to the every, everything else, I mean, the rural urban divide in education has just got bigger. So I think, you know, you really, really need to, to think through, you know, um, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how we're going to address this inequality that is urban versus rural. Um, do you want to bring cram schools back? You know, yes. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think that, that, you know, that they need them. And I think that you have to, you know, the, the, the problem wasn't the cram schools. The problem is the competitiveness of Chinese education system. Right. And, um, you know, that it's based on one exam. Right. That's what lets you go forward. Right. If you pass and the Junkau, that's the high school entrance exam is more competitive than the college entrance exam. And if you don't if you don't get a high score on that, you you go to vocational school or drop out and go to work. So so the double reduction policy, also the educational, also known as the educational reforms in 2011. I mean, most commonly it serves two purpose. Right. The first one is to to reduce the cost of raising a child by decreasing the amount of resources you have to put into education, um, which plays into their population demographics, which we'll get into later. But the second part is to increase, supposedly increase equality in education, you know, to take out these private classes and to foster more public classes so everyone has the same access. But as you said earlier, what, what it's done is cut off classes for rural areas and people who live in urban areas who still have the resources you know, they can still get private classes, home private home tutoring. Exactly. That, that seems to be a bit of an issue. I mean, don't you think the government would see that and try to make changes to the policy? I mean, are they doing that? Well, it has a lot to do with also the, qual the quality of schools. Um, you know, let me tell you another of the, out of the unanticipated outcomes of this. So now that there's a double, there's also a double reduction is the schools can't have kids working too too much at school they can't so they can do some tutoring in school but they restrict it so in elementary school fourth fifth and sixth grade they can only spend a half hour of tutoring class for homework after school so you know these are rural schools where you know kids come to the rural school and they actually stay in a dorm so they're actually they're actually um, boarding when they're eight, nine, 10 years old, which is another issue. So this is what happened. We've been doing a program on mental health in schools, trying to get kids anxiety and stress early in fifth and sixth grade. So by the time they get the uh, junior high or high school is that this stress and anxiety hasn't turned into deeper stress or anxiety or even depression, right? Um, and it, it's a project being done uh, with the Chinese Academy of Science Institute of um, Psychology. And um, so to, to do this study, we, we went to 60 schools and in 30 schools, we taught the teachers 
how to teach this social emotional learning curriculum. And the, they all liked, I mean, the, the teachers liked it, the kids liked it, and it's actually reduced mental health problems and increased grades. I mean, it's, it, we're not teaching them anything more math, but as their anxiety goes down, guess what? Their math scores go up. So that's the good news. The bad news is when we're talking to these kids, we, we haven't filled out a survey form and, you know, how much time do you spend studying at home? How much, you know, um, you know, what was the educational uh, uh, level of your parents? You know, um, how old are you? How many brothers and sisters? We ask them all this stuff. We also ask them, what you do in your free time. And so we ask them, how much time do you spend on your, do you have a smartphone, yes or no? And how much time do you spend on that smartphone? And what do you do? Okay, and it's how much time per day do you spend on your smartphone? So first of all, 95% of fourth graders and fifth graders have smartphones, okay, 95%, okay. And we would ask them, how much time do you spend on social media per day? And as we're going around and they're doing a survey for us, right? The kids are filling out their form and this kid writes down five. And, and then our collaborator in China says, no, 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 no. Not how much hours per week, how much hours per day. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I spend five hours a day on social media, on TikTok, on Douyin, right? On and then we go to the next guy. It's four hours, five hours, four and a half. And he says, well, of course, she goes, we get out of school at four. We can only have a half hour of homework time. We eat lunch. We eat dinner at 4.30. By 5.30, we're in our dorm rooms and we play TikTok until 11.30 p.m. That's, that's what they do every single day. And I mean, and you look at those kids and you see how it's, it's basically correlated with mental health problems. It's, it's a real, real issue because the teachers can't give them any more homework. They can't have classes at night. That's what they used to do, but not anymore. So this is an unanticipated outcome, you know, of this policy in a rural areas that can't afford in-home tutors and they have boarding schools. So parents aren't with them. It's, you know, their parents are in Shanghai anyhow, and the kids are in Sichuan. So, and you know, grandma and grandpa don't even know what TikTok is. And are you guys looking into a potential policy or otherwise solution to this problem? Is there something to, to fill the gap here that's not, you know, five hours of math or five hours of TikTok, but something in between, maybe some extracurricular activities that are more beneficial to, to development? You know, if you ever want somebody to, to talk about, you know, uh, China's, you know, economic problems, there's a professor in uh, Shanghai, Shanghai Jiao Tong University School of, um, of um, Economics. His name is uh, Lu Feng. And um, uh, he basically, um, you know, says China needs to urbanize, right? We can't have these schools out in rural areas, right? They Good teachers don't want to go there. Um, you know, the parents have to leave their kids in their local county and they have to go to Shanghai and you know the, the kids should be with their parents and if their parents are in Shanghai they should be able to go to Shanghai schools right and and you know I think that this is the bottom line of the problem let me tell you if mom and dad were with that kid and the kid was in their house every day they wouldn't be playing five hours of TikTok right they the 
the mom would have them sitting there doing homework, right? Or, or maybe, you know, doing chores and, um, uh, and, you know, that type of thing. And so, you know, I think that, that there's the fundamental problem. And I think until that happens, even, you know, if we brought back cram schools for fourth and fifth tier cities, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to help you know, it'll make it a little bit more fair, but, you know, so instead of being this, you know, a, a foot unfair, it's 11 inches unfair, right? I see, I see. Yeah, no, I think, I think talking to the, um, the other professor that you recommended on this issue would also be, be very, very interesting. So, I mean, in your interaction with educators, students, you know, or stakeholders in the Chinese education system, have you come across any, you know, untold stories or experiences you know, that shed light on the hidden challenges faced by participants in the system. You know, as you interact a lot with these rural communities, are there any of these stories that, or challenges that they face that, you know, people may not realize? I'm going to tell you two quick stories. Uh, one is about South Korea. So I, I went to a, um, and, and this was when I really started working on, on China's education system. It's in 2000, I forget, 2005 or six, I went to South Korea and it's really a boring conference. Um, because everybody gave papers on what are the problems of having a hundred percent of your kids go to college, <laughs> you know, and then they get out and, you know, there's no jobs for them. Right. And I always say, what a great problem to have. It's the best problem a country can have. Right. <laughs> and it's a, I mean, obviously it's a problem, but okay. Um, but what I learned from there was done not by an academic, but there was a documentary maker who said, I'm going to show you the best documentary I ever made that won the Korean prize that I now think is the worst one I ever made. And I'm going to show you one that I made last year. And basically what she did was in the 1970s. So there was still a dictatorship, um, you know, um, and she snuck a film, a camera into a sweatshop, she called it. And it was all these women were saying, look at these poor women. They work six or seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Then they go to dinner, and then she says, after dinner, they have to go to high school for three three hours. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> okay, that's exactly what she says in her. Okay, then she stops at one and says, "Let me let me play you another one I made. This was 1978, the original one. She it's now 2004, and she goes finds the young women who are behind these sewing machines. Okay, in 1978." And one is working in an accounting firm as an assistant. One, one is a hotel manager. Another is an investment firm. And she's like the head receptionist in this reception firm. And they're all doing white collar jobs. Okay. And that's what she's saying. She says, oh, I now understand. They went to high school and learned math and science and language. And when their and when their factory jobs moved to China, right? And they're in and you know they became this high income country, they still had jobs. Okay, so that's the one story. The other story is we went to a big factory, I'm not going to tell you where, but a big factory in China that had you know tens of thousands of workers doing just factory jobs, okay? And um the, this was in 2014, 2015, and the economy was still booming, and they were trying to keep their workers from from leaving too early. Okay, and um, and so 
the, the first, so what we were thinking is, you know, well, what do these kids want to do 10 years from now? So we, we chose 20,000 of these workers and we gave them a survey. We said, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? Okay. So this is 20,000 workers in a factory and 10% said, I'm still going to be in a factory. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, and you say, why do you still want to be in a factory? You say, well, the other 90%, why didn't you want to be a factory? You go, well, it's really hard work and I want the money, but I don't want to do this my whole life. Okay, so they, they're not going to be a factory. 1% said, I'm going to go back to the farm. <laughs> and we said, why don't you want to go back to the farm? The other 99% said, oh my gosh, you know, I make in three weeks what my dad makes in a year and I don't even know how to farm. I never farm. Okay. Um, 88% said, I want to go into business for myself. Okay. So we said, oh, they want to do self-employed business. So we started, uh, we, we started this program. We thought, well, maybe if we teach them how to do business, they'll stay at the factory and won't leave. And so we started these programs. We had 5,000 workers and there was 50 50 classes with 100 students in each and 4,800 of them signed up. After one week, 4,600 came. After four weeks, it was down to 3,000. After seven weeks, it was down to 300. And we went back, they just didn't come. And they said, I couldn't understand the math. You know, we taught them about, you know, interest rates and accounting and human resources, um, blah, 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 blah. And um, they just couldn't, they just couldn't do it. And guess what 1% said? 1% said, I want to do, I can do a white collar job. Out of 20,000 workers, 200 of them can do a white collar. Guess in a high income country, 80% of the work, 80% of the workforce is white collar. So that made me start thinking, I go, wow, what, you know, what's China going to do with 600 million people that don't have a job? I mean, I think it's a big, big issue. So that's what I really think, you know, China needs to worry about. Yeah, yeah. after you mentioned that story, that's a question that came into my head too. I mean, is it too late for these people? I mean, what's for them next? Because as you know, the next generation, as you know, the Ministry of Health focuses more on early childhood education, you know, they'll be able to comprehend the math, the science, the uh, these topics. But what about the current workers who within the next 10 years, they'll see a transformation in China's economy from a more industrial one to a more white collar focused one. What, what's going to happen to them? <laughs> uh, what happened in Mexico? <laughs> uh, what happened in Mexico was, right, they turned from one of the fastest growing, they, you know, in 19, in, I was in grad school in the 1980s. Mexico had grown at 8% a year, which was pretty good for the 60s and 70s, up through the mid 80s. They became OECD, so they became a high income country. And guess what? <laughs> they topped out and, you know, they had their, their peso crisis in 1990. They haven't grown since. And they went from one of the most peaceful, safe countries in the world to one of the most violent, you know, crime-ridden countries in the world. It's because about half of their labor force couldn't function in this high-income economy, right? Um, is that what's going to happen to China? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I hope not for sure. And I think that what China needs to do is number one, start zero to three today, right? Because if you start tomorrow, you know, there's going to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
500,000 people that, you know, don't get trained. Um, uh, second, you know, they need to start training programs, job training programs. They don't have very good job training programs. That's not means that all these job training programs are going to work, but they should try to get them retrained. Um, and number three, they better put a great big safety net out there. Um, you know, um, so I always say stop building high-speed rails. Your high-speed rail system is great. I love their high-speed rail system. I'm sure you do too, right? It's fantastic. But they got enough. If if this remote county seat doesn't have high-speed rail, let people take a train or a bus, right? And use that money to put into these areas. You know, and um, uh, I think that they need to... So they're spending a lot more money on rural education now. It needs to be doubled and tripled. Um, and, uh, uh, I think, I think it's going to be a big challenge, uh, slow down growth. Um, and, uh, you know, just, you know, try to, try to get this labor force educated to an area, uh, you know, to a, a level that can, um, you know, can, can become a high income economy. So I agree in the coming decades, as early childhood education takes its form, one looming question remains, what will happen to our current workforce during the significant economic transition in China? This is a seamless segue into our next topic of discussion, China's aging population. I mean, very crucial is recognizing the interplay between China's educational reform and China's rapidly aging population. I mean, a recent study from The Economist titled The Age of the Grandparents Has Arrived underscores the surge in elderly demographic, revealing unique challenges and opportunities, especially in rural sectors. Now, as of 2022, China's population aged 60 and above stood at 264 million, representing 18.7% of the total population. Astonishingly, this number is projected to rise to 487 million by 2050. It's noteworthy that rural areas are experiencing this aging trend much more swiftly, recording 15% of their population above 65 compared to 11% in urban regions. Such aging trends intensifies labor market challenges, especially as older rural workers retire and younger generations migrate to urban areas seeking employment. Now, while the U.S. isn't immune to these demographic shifts, the magnitude of China's aging boom, given its vast populace, calls for immediate and strategic interventions. Now, considering the profound societal impacts of such a demographic shift, what is your view on this trend? And how do you foresee it shaping China's economic landscape? I mean, are there specific implications we should be particularly attentive to? Yeah, you laid that out really good about what the numbers are going to be. Um, so... You know, I, I don't work very much on aging and I know that there's, you know, there's huge issues in terms of the quality of the, of the health system to, to deal with, uh, you know, all the health problems dealing with aging. Um, what I often say is, you know, that there's going to be a lot, a lot, a lot more elderly in the future. Okay. That, that's exactly what you just said. It's going to, you know, go up. Well, you'd better get your kids, you better get their kids or their grandkids educated as much as possible so they'll have good jobs, so they'll be able to support their grandparents and parents in the future. Just talked about how, you know, there's going to be huge employment issues with these, you know, um, rural kids, rural young adults that don't have the skills to participate in a high economy. I mean, if you're unemployed, how do you take care of your, your elderly grandparents and your parents, right? Uh, it, it's going to be a, a huge issue. And, 
you know, everybody says, well, China is the second largest economy in the whole world. You know, maybe in PPT terms, it's the largest economy. Per capita income, it's number 70, right? So, you know, they're 70th in the world. They're, they, they are not going to, for the next 10 or 20 years, they are not going to have the resources to provide good, you know, retirement social security packages to their elderly population. They're going to be taken care of mostly by their kids. And so if your kids aren't earning money or don't have a good job or are unemployed, those parents and those grandparents are going to have a huge problem um, because, you know, there's not going to be a very high social security system out there. They just can't do it, right? I mean, it's just, it's too expensive. And I think with that, we could transition into employment, because as we mentioned earlier, there's a very large portion of China's population still in the industrial sector. And as the sector shifts within the next 10 to 20 years, as we've discussed, the corresponding jobs will have to be adapted to. But as you said earlier, these people are having trouble adapting to these shifts in employment. Now, China's official unemployment rate was, I believe, 5.5% in December 2022, which is typical for an OECD country, which some people believe is underreported. Now, the Chinese government recently urged rural officials to prioritize human labor over machines in response to a shift from the industrial sector. Now, what, in your opinion, is the underlying rationale for this strategic shift? And what are the you know, potential consequences of this transition from machine-driven to human-intense projects in rural workforces? Mostly, you got it right. Um, manufacturing labor is already falling, okay? So, and construction labor is already falling. And I think with the property market <laughs> crisis, it's falled a lot, okay? So where do those guys go? They all get dumped into the service sector, the informal service sector, right? Um, and if you look at that, the growth of the informal service sector is, you know, growing at a really, really rapid rate. It's much, much higher than the formal service sector, which is, you know, the teachers, the 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 lawyers the the professors the um investors right the government employees and so th they're growing you know uh, you know at a rate of you know five to ten percent a year the the rate of growth of the uh un of the informal service sector low skill uh, low wage service sector is is faster than all that everybody's getting dumped because everybody getting dumped into that low you know, to that uh, informal service sector, it's growing faster, especially now after COVID, when there's all this uncertainty and people have stopped consuming as much as they did before, before COVID, is supply of workers to the, to the service sector is much, much higher than demand. And so guess what? Wages are actually falling. Okay. So you see wages are, 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 are falling out there. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, the, that's, that's going to, you know, keep happening. <laughs> um, so even if they start to bring back, you know, um, jobs to the industrial sector, are they going to come back to the uh, construction sector? I mean, is the property market going to revive? I hope so. And then it'll bring construction workers back. I hope that, you know, manufacturing continues to boom in China. Um, and if they start to hire more workers, great. You know, they've, like I told you, for the past 10 or 15 years, China has been the most rapidly automating country in the whole world, right? Um, 
And and so are, is that going to turn around? Um, yeah, somewhat, right? But, um, you know, I think that it, it's just this basic underlying um, problem that, you know, the, the, the unskilled service sector it, part of the labor force is so huge um, is that you better put a safety net under it because put, making a few jobs out there, you know, isn't enough. And you better try to get a job retraining program. And as many kids, as many of the young workers that can be retrained, retrained. Let, let me go to back to one more thing that you said, and uh, we'll go on. Um, if you look in China now, almost every day people talk about the unemployment rate of the youth in cities. And what is it, 16 to 24 year olds, it's 20 21%, something like that, right? So let's take it's about, there's about 50 million, 50 million uh, people between 14 to 25 year old in the urban sector. 20% of that is 10 million. That means 10 million people are unemployed, okay? Um, guess what? No, the rural sector, cannot have unemployment because if you lose your job in you're a rural person guess what you can go back to your farm <laughs> okay and so no there's by definition there are zero people who have a rural hukou and remember they're 65 percent of the labor force so 65 percent of the labor force the unemployment rate is zero but in fact remember what i said about these factory workers 99% said, I'm never going to go work in agriculture, right? So they think they're unemployed, but the government doesn't report them as unemployed. Um, as late as March, February, March of, uh, of 2022, this was after COVID, you know, opening up, you know, we did an informal survey and found something around 20% of these rural workers were unemployed or didn't have a job in the construction sector, off-farm sector, or service sector. They, they could farm, <laughs> but they weren't. That's, that's of 600 million people. That's 100 million people didn't have a job. But guess what? They weren't unemployed, so they didn't get unemployment insurance. That's the problem with China, right? And, and if now, now, when I was back in, in June and July, I didn't do the same. We didn't do the same survey, but the households I went to, they all said, oh, my husband or my son is now back to work, which they were happy. And, but they were also making about 40% less than they were making in 2019. So there's some fundamental issues out there. And I think that uh, it's, they have to do with the health of the economy. Let's hope the economy bounces back and, you know, <laughs> construction work goes back up and uh, manufacturing jobs go back up and and people start spending on the service sector and you know that the service sector demand goes up and wages start to rise again china's going to be fine but if that doesn't happen they better be ready to put you know a safety net under these rural people cuz you know if you don't have a job and you don't have any money you know and you don't want to go back to the farm what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to go in the crime? You know, are you going to, are you, are you going to go into, right? The, the, and uh, to gangs, um, you know, China invented gangs, China invented gangs 5,000 years ago. Right. And I think it's, you know, I don't want that to happen. So that's why I think that China really needs to think hard about this.
Hmm, I see. And what you know changes in policies or programs do experts currently propose to meaningfully address you know the, this, these employment issues prevalent prevalent among rural workers? And is there one that you find particularly I think effective? Yeah, I think it's so early that they haven't. They you know they're hoping the economy bounces back, right? Um, they're doing things like uh, rural revitalization, right? Uh, or I think it's, since rural has never been vitalized, it's called rural vitalization. It's not revitalization. I don't even know if vitalization is a real word or not, but it's uh, called rural vitalization where they're trying to make the rural areas a better place to live. No high income country in the world has ever sent people back to the farm. They move to the cities, right? And so, you know, now they are letting more people move to the cities, to county seats, to, to prefectural seats. I think that's that's a good move. I think it's a, um, whether they keep a good job there, at least they can get better education and better health care. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't think they have a strategy to deal with that. I think they're, they were hoping that the economy would bounce back and, you know, uh, be as vital as sort of vitalized as it had been for the past, you know, 40 years. Um, if that doesn't happen, it's going to be interesting to see how they try to deal with these problems. I see. Are there any particular strategies or policies that you would recommend to be put in place in this situation to alleviate the employment issues in, with the rural population? <laughs> I've already said it. <laughs> spend more on rural education, uh, spend more on job retraining, and get a safety net system for recognize that rural people can be unemployed. And if they're unemployed, you have to give them a safety net. You know, um, the last thing in the world you want them to do is, you know, if they see their future as hopeless, right? Um, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, what could happen? I mean, it's what happened in Brazil. It's what happened in, in South Africa. It's what's happening in Turkey. It's what happened in Mexico, right? I mean, people don't want to go into crime. They don't want to go into, they don't want to do that, right? But when they have no other choice, they do that. Right. What's the, what's the population of this uh, rural worker right now? Like The labor force is about 60 to 65 percent have a rural uh, huko of 900 million. So we're talking about uh, 600 million. So 600 million people. That's two United States. 600. That, that's a lot of people. Would funding a safety net to cover the 600 million people be a very big issue for China? I imagine for any country it would be. A giant issue, right? Um, um, I, what I say is stop Belt and Road. Stop building high-speed rails. You know, I love space program. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, my dad got us up at 4 a.m. to watch, you know, the, the the rocket launches. You know, when I was a kid, and I till today, I love. I want China to go to the moon, and they're trying to go to the moon by 2030. What I tell them is, go to the moon by 2040, right? If you go in 2030 or 2040, you're going to find it's dirt, right? There's just dirt up there, right? There's a, so use that money and then put it in rural education, starting at zero to three, job retraining program, and unemployment insurance. You have to do that. And if you don't do that, you know, again, you can watch your economy. You know, if it rebounds and it is starting growing six, seven, eight percent a year for the next 10 years, you're going to be fine. But if it doesn't, you better put those, you better do that in place. 
I think that that makes a lot of sense. And hopefully, you know, we'll see the economy rebound or there'll be certain policies in place to, to prevent, you know, gangs from forming. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you know, we don't want, I mean, we know, you know, China is one of the safest countries. You go, when I was there, you know, at midnight, you're walking around and single women are walking down dark alleys all by themselves, right? It's a very, very safe place right now. And uh, we don't want that to change. Um, you, know, you know, I always say I want China to continue to continue to develop. You know, I think a developing China is good for the world. It's good for China. And, and you know, I want them to be transparent and I want them to play by international rules. Uh, you know, uh, I want the U.S. to, to engage China uh, more proactively than they are right then. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, a, a developing, growing China is good for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's actually a cover that uh, a topic that we covered last week on our podcast with um, Professor Stuart Gottlieb. He's a he's an American foreign policy expert here at Columbia, and a few of the topics we discussed was on potential collaborations and how to foster a you know a better, more functioning world economy. Um, so so pr- pretty interesting there. But lastly, I'd like to trans- transition to our last topic, which is your book, The Invisible China. Now, the implications of rural employment issues, rural-urban inequality, and the significant educational gap between rural and urban areas in China presents a complex picture that necessitates comprehensive understanding and strategic solutions. Interestingly, these issues have been meticulously dissected in the enlightening work of your book, Professor Scott Rizal's book, The Invisible China. Now, the book provides a comprehensive insight into the pertinent issues that are often overlooked in mainstream discussions about China's unprecedented economic rise. Now, as we pivot our discussion towards this insightful work, we would appreciate hearing Professor Scott Rosell elaborate on the insights and revelations presented in his book, The Invisible China. So this leads to our first question. In Invisible China, you present the concept of two Chinas, illustrating a stark urban-rural divide. Could you, could you explain on how this disparity impacts the nation's overall socioeconomic landscape and how it might shape China's future? Thank you for uh, talking about Invisible China. Um, uh, Natalie Hell, my co-author, fantastic writer. We wrote it together. It took us, you know, several years. It was, and um, it's it's really been nice to have everything together. Uh, I'm an economist that writes papers. Uh, writing that book was not easy, and, <laughs> and uh, but I'm I'm glad I did. Ex post, I'm glad I did it. So, but I, you know, it's uh, if if. You know, in the the previous part of this podcast, I've been talking about the problems that we've been uh, identifying, and um, they're they're basically that is that you know. Um, so what I say is, you know, if you if you look at a graph, it's going to be hard to. This is a podcast, so it's hard to say. But the the graph has, you know, on the x axis is the um, uh, income levels in 1960 and. In the y-axis, it's the income levels today. And so in the bottom left-hand corner, you have poor, poor. So it's Myanmar and you know Ethiopia and Congo, right? And then in the upper right-hand corner, it's rich, rich. So it's Norway and Sweden and the United States and, and um, you know, Australia, et cetera, right? And so uh, those are the OECD countries. Um, what I really interested in are two of the, these blocks. And one is upper middle. And so why, and I call these the graduates. So these 15 countries, so there's only 15 of them. 
since 1960 are the only countries that went from middle income to high income. Okay. I mean, there's not many that, uh, and we don't include Eastern Europe in there. Um, actually over the past 20 years, since, you know, the fall of the Berlin wall, all those Eastern European countries that were middle income have become high income now, but they were high income before they became socialist, then became middle income, and now they're high income again. So they aren't part of that. Uh, they joined the EU and the EU, you know, picked them back up. Um, and the, so that's 15 countries. So that's Israel and Ireland and South Korea, um, Taiwan um, province, <laughs> you know, or uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's those countries and territories that have risen over time. The other one is the middle box. So 60 years ago, they're middle income and 60 and today they're middle income. Those are people in the middle income trap. There's actually almost 80 or 90 countries that are in this middle that for 60 years, they haven't been able to break that barrier and become high income. So that's the Brazil's, the Argentina's, the Mexico's South Africa, Turkey's. Okay. And, and um, you know, uh, I think that when you look at the difference, there's, there's a number of differences between these two countries, but the number one difference that, that I focus on is that the graduates, those countries that are not high income, that were middle income six years ago, that the time they were middle income already had 60 or 70 or 80% of their labor force at the high school level. And so it was just like that story I told of South Korea. So when these women who were behind a factory, you know, uh, working in a factory, um, you, you know, when they were middle income, when they become high income, they the factory goes away, they go to a white collar job. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, um, Israel is like that and Ireland is like that. And they all have their different stories of why they educated and the, the the countries down in these middle income traps are like China with 30 or 40 percent, which means that 70 or, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 percent of their population of their labor force has never been to one day of high school. And, and you know, I think that how do you educate your your middle income country? Well, you got to start when you're lower middle income, right, because it takes 40 years to educate your labor force. And that's a really hard thing to do. You have to allocate resources there where, you know, you could be making high-speed rails or freeways, but instead you're putting it into the education of rural or, you know, uh, poor urban slums instead. And, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, and I think that's that's very, very important. That And that's really the message of the book. Um, you know, there's, there are lessons for India. There's lessons for Bangladesh. There's lessons for Indonesia. And, you know, those lessons are start investing in education now. And, and you know, you go to India and you say, you should have everybody in the high school now. And they throw up their hands and say, we can't get kids to stay through junior high in many of our parts. And so it's a real, it, it's, it's an issue. So it's a, but it's something that has to be done. I, I think that's a very good summary of, of the key points that, that we've talked about today. Um, you know, the key issues between the rural and the urban divide. I think that's it's a, it's a very, very good note to, to sort of end on. Yeah. And um, thank you very much, Professor Ozell, you know, for sharing your valuable insights on these critical topics and for shedding light on the challenges and opportunities in rural development in China. Your research has been instrumental in shaping policy and improving the lives of rural communities. 
We're we are truly grateful for your time today. It's been really fun. I uh, uh, that um, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. They're they're terrific, and I'm honored to be able to have uh, done this with you. Thank you, Charlie. Of course. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our discussion with leading expert Professor Scott Roselle provides invaluable insight on rural China. We explore education reforms, including strengthening rural schooling and early childhood learning. Regarding employment, many rural workers lack skills to transition from manufacturing to service. Professor Roselle emphasized the need for job retraining and safety nets. He notes that overcoming rural-urban inequality is key to avoiding the middle-income trap that ensnares developing nations. His book, The Invisible China, offers a comprehensive look at transforming rural China. I am your host, Charlie Du. This has been an episode of the U.S. China Salon podcast, exploring major issues in worldwide development through conversations with leading experts. Please subscribe for more insightful dialogues and analysis. Thank you for listening.